I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. If you're not already subscribing, please subscribe, leave us a review. You can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you can find your podcast. So today, Batya, we're talking about a spate of bills that have been introduced by Republicans and state legislatures across the country. Idaho made a lot of headlines for actually signing one of these bills into law a couple weeks ago. These bills are all trying to limit the spread of critical race theory in education. Generally, we're talking about K through 12 public education here. So before we kind of get into the weeds, we should probably start by just defining the terms a little bit. So, Buddy, why don't you tell us a bit about how critical race theory's defenders would define what we're even talking about when we use the term critical race theory? Yeah, it's one of those topics that's really defined by what side you're on. So people even disagree about how to define it. So I'm going to give you my best bet at how the defenders of critical race theory define it. So listeners, if you don't know what critical race theory is, don't worry, because until recently it was actually a super academic point of view. It was a framework, it is a framework, for looking at American history as well as the American present and actually how those two are intertwined. So the way I would define critical race theory is like this. It's the idea that America is an inherently and systematically racist country whose deeply racist past continues to influence its present and even define its present as a racist and white supremacist country. That's how I think that people really who support this view would define it. And from their point of view, because America was once a white supremacy and continues to be a white supremacy, white people have a kind of power and what they call privilege that people of color don't have and can never access. So there's this kind of power imbalance between white people and people of color that's baked into the nature of America itself. That's how I think the left would define critical race theory. And you're seeing it go from what was once a kind of academic fringe to really being mainstreamed uh, across the liberal left. And you're seeing it even in curriculums in schools. And so that has gotten some pushback from Republicans because they say that critical race theory is actually something else. They view it in a much more pernicious light. So Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the right sees critical race theory and why they're pushing back against it? You know, from a from a conservative perspective, I think when a lot of us hear the term critical race theory, we can, we can start by kind of just removing the word race and thinking about what is quote unquote critical theory. Um, which, as its kind of intellectual origins, kind of really took prominence during kind of uh, the Frankfurt School, it was kind of affiliated, I think, with thinkers of the Frankfurt School, people like Marcuse and Adorno. Um, I think a lot of us kind of hear critical theory, critical race theory, and like intrinsically associated with strands of, of, of Marxist thought. And critical critical race theory in particular, I, you know, Bob, you're totally right. It had kind of originated in the academy. It's kind of only in the past... 15, 20, well, really even less than that, honestly. I mean, what, like the past five years that's kind of like escaped the academy in full force and kind of entering really the public discourse. And um, I agree with you. I think that it is kind of a, is an approach to kind of uh, race and, and, and justice um, that is downstream of a lot of what you were saying. It is downstream of the notion that America is kind of an inherently systemic, systemically racist country with abiding inequities that, uh, that, that the force of law has to be kind of wielded to rectify those remedies in a way that I think offends a lot of our sensibilities, um, in a way that I think uh, is, frankly, itself overtly uh, discriminatory. But don't take my word for it. You can kind of take 
the word of none other than Ibram X. Kendi, kind of the the, the leading anti-racist theorist in the country, anti-racism and critical race theory being kind of two peas from the same pod, so to speak. So, you know, Ibram X. Kendi himself famously said, uh, quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So, um, you know, that's straight from the guy's mouth, so to speak. Um, so, this really has kind of taken hold. Uh, Chris Rufo um, has done a lot of investigative reporting throughout the country uh, on what is being said in a lot of classrooms here. And there does seem to be a lot of traction uh, in state legislatures for trying to just affirmatively ban this, to use the kind of the powers of, of the state to prevent this from being taught, discussed, and so forth, uh, especially, like we said, in public school K-12 curricula, uh, again, with the state of Idaho kind of leading the way here with it, with an actual bill that was affirmatively signed into law a couple of weeks ago. Um, so that is kind of uh, the higher level uh, overview here. Uh, very, very timely topic. Seems to get everyone, no matter where you are on the spectrum, pretty, uh, pretty passionate. So, um, Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about who is actually going to be debating this? Right. So we're here to debate exactly what you were talking about. These state legislatures and beyond governments intervening and saying we don't want our children learning critical race theory and actually taking action against it. And you're seeing that, like you said, in Idaho, we're seeing it in Texas, we're seeing it in Missouri. Um, so this really is has been picked up as a rallying cry, a culture war by the right, pushing back against what they see as culture war on the left and to debate whether or not. The government should be doing this. We have two excellent, excellent thinkers. Uh, Max Eden is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Marcus Johnson is a PhD student at American University who studies the racial wealth gap. And they both have such interesting things to say on this topic. We're hosting their debate at Newsweek at the debate, and we have them here to debate this live with us. Now, I know Josh and I both have our own views on this topic, but we're really going to try to keep them in check and hear from our guests. And we're really excited to have them joining us. Stay tuned. This is the debate at Newsweek, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. Badia, why don't you tell us who we're going to hear from today in this debate? Yeah, we could not be more thrilled. Uh, we have Max Eden, a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Marcus Johnson, a PhD student at American University who studies how political institutions impact the racial wealth gap. And we have them here to discuss critical race theory and this new move by Republicans to start banning it from schools. Uh, welcome to both of you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Happy to be here. All right, so why don't we start by having each of you present your side of this debate? Um, let's start with you, Marcus. Should government be intervening and banning critical race theory from schools? All right, sure. Well, critical race theory, I think, is really misunderstood. Critical race theory is a worldview. It's a perspective. It's a framework for understanding events. So critical race theory essentially says that the past impacts the future. So in the past, there were racist, discriminatory institutions set up like slavery, Jim Crow, et cetera, that took black people out of the economy, took away opportunities, jobs, et cetera, uh, from non-white people. And what critical race theory says is that these discriminatory events in the past impact current disparities in the future. So the current disparities that we see now based on race are in part due to what happened in the past. And critical race theory is a framework for understanding that and understanding 
the kind of perspectives that non-whites have for a long time been kind of shut out from America. So I, I think that to ban critical race theory is to shut out a certain perspective from being heard. And I think in an increasingly uh, diverse, increasingly multiracial society, that's the wrong thing to do. It's important to hear from these different perspectives that for a long time were not allowed to be in the mainstream. So I think that a movement to ban um, critical race theory is only harmful to people. And I, I think that in the long run, it, it really won't work. I think that American culture um, moves left um, as time goes on. So I, I think that these bans are really kind of short-sighted and they're really just harming students. Yeah, so there's a there's a degree to which uh, in this debate, I find that we're kind of talking past each other, right? The What Marcus said that, you know, when critical race theory is defined as looking at ways that past discrimination affects the present, uh, I don't actually think there's an argument that such views and inquiries should be banned. What I do believe should be banned is what happens in classrooms when teachers and administrators have wholeheartedly bought into this ideology and what it means when it reaches the students. In Grace Church High School, it meant, according to the lead teacher, we are demonizing white people for being born, right? And that is not, to my mind, that's not a bug, that's a feature. When you look at Ibram X. Kendi, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, arguably the most important uh, critical race theory intellectual in America, he will say, and this is, you know, a direct quote, the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. That is an open-ended call to racial discrimination as a means to solve past racial discrimination, right? And so when you look at what these laws actually say, the law was just passed over the weekend or signed to the law by the state of Idaho, by the governor. Um, it didn't say, you know, no teachers may present legacies of how racism affects modern American society, practice, economics, etc. What the law says is that no educational institution, quote, shall direct or otherwise compel students to personally affirm that any race, sex, ethnicity, religion, color or national origin is inherently superior or inferior to another. That is already illegal, right? We have the Civil Rights Act, we have Title VI. Uh, many things that are being done in the name of critical race theory, and Marcus might very well and perhaps quite accurately say that he doesn't believe that what I'm defining constitutes critical race theory, and very curious to hear his thoughts on this. Uh, but what we are talking about banning our practices that we have already recognized as being illegal, as being things that children should not be subjected to and that public institutions should not do, that they should not discriminate against any individual on account of race in any circumstance or any way. Yeah. So, Marcus, I, I, I do wonder how much of a semantic difference is kind of doing the actual work here, right, in terms of defining what we mean when we speak of critical race theory. I mean, you know, Max there, he read arguably, I would say, the most famous quote, uh, at least that I'm aware of, from Ibram X. Kendi's work about, you know, the remedy for past discrimination, remedy for present discrimination, etc. I'm a lawyer by training. I hear that and my ears just like shoot up. I mean, I, I am like on like uh, on high alert for equal protection clause violation, 14th Amendment, Civil Rights Act of 1964, Civil Rights Act of 1866, frankly. I mean, the Senator Lyman Trumbull, the lead kind of Senate Judiciary Committee draftsman of that provision, talked ex expressly about, you know, outlawing from like what I hear exactly that. So I, 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 I do you object um, to defining critical race theory the way that Max did? And if not, 
how would it be legal, I guess, is what I'm trying to ask. I'm not a lawyer by training, so I, I don't look at it from a law standpoint. I kind of look at it as a framework for understanding the world. I look at it as kind of like a, as a political scientist would look at a, at a lens. Um, so I look at critical race theory as this isn't saying that we're discriminating against whites and that whites cannot have certain opportunities, whites cannot have certain jobs, or whites cannot think a certain way. Um, critical race theory is saying that whites got certain benefits um, due to the way that the political system was set up and due to the way that um, laws were structured hundreds of years ago, decades ago, up into the 60s and the 70s when some of these things were rectified by Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. So I look at it more as a framework for understanding the world and not necessarily saying that whites are to be discriminated against. Um, sure, there are critical race uh, theorists that say um, certain things that may be construed that way, but I don't understand critical race theory that way. And the people I've talked to that are lawyers, that are professors, um, don't necessarily understand it that way. So I can see where people are talking by each other a little bit, but I think that from the way that I understand critical race theory, it's not about discriminating against whites at all. It's about saying where these uh, disparities came from and understanding um, the process that created them. Yeah. And, and Max, I guess to you, I, I wonder if maybe there's some sort of distinction here between the theory and the practice. I, I mean, you know, I know both you and I have read all of kind of Chris Rufo's reporting on this and going school district by school district, the spirit murdering of children and white abolition and all of these uh, concepts that are not particularly pleasant. Uh, but is there a difference in kind of the theory and how it is carried out in the classroom or to kind of go back to your previous point, is this, is this really just a feature, not a bug of the entire edifice? Well, I think there are a couple of things to, to, to kind of that I want to put on the table in this regard, right? Like what Marcus is saying and speaking of it as a theory, as something that can be presented to students as a way to understand certain facets of, uh, of American society within an academic context. I've read basically every single bill that has been proposed, and not all of them, but most of them have an explicit provision along the lines of like, nothing in this bill shall be construed to like interfere with information presented to students in an academic setting, right? The stuff that this is supposed to address is the stuff that happens in Evanston, Illinois, when students are separated by race, uh, that white students are explicitly shamed uh, and kind of told to feel privileged in a public setting. Teachers are told to treat students differently based off of race. And the Office of Civil Rights, which would obviously have a problem with it if whites and blacks were separated and blacks were sent a certain message, has indicated that it doesn't have a problem with it if whites are sent certain messages. So I believe that a distinction could be drawn between the stuff that Marx is talking about, that he reads, that other academics have worked on in the discourse, and what happens in the classroom on like in practice, I believe that it's possible to draw a theoretical distinction there. Uh, however, in practice, this movement is not responding to the theoretical critique that Marcus has outlined. This movement is responding to uh, what you're talking about, what we've seen reported, what we're hearing from teachers, that in practice, and I would love to see, you know, critical race theorists, academics stand up and say, no, you're, you're taking this too far. This is not what we believe. In practice, it is blending, I think, inexorably from the argument that whites have been uh, beneficiaries of privilege due to various things in our history and various laws, et cetera. 
I think it blends directly into shaming white students now into telling them that they are privileged and to making that into a personal matter as a matter of pedagogy. And there are all sorts of academics who write for teachers who advocate this quite directly. So in practice, I'm not really convinced that a, that a strong distinction holds from what we're seeing. So let me just push back a little bit, Max. I mean, doesn't the St. Louis Amendment explicitly say that school teachings can't identify people or institutions as racist, biased, privileged, or oppressed? And um, so so to that kind of does sound more to me like it's banning the Marcus definition of critical race theory. And how is this not a free speech violation, a First Amendment violation? It varies from, from state to state, mm-hmm. right? What is in them and what is proposed and like... There are forms of this that I would not necessarily advocate for. Like the one I just read, for example, you wouldn't support that. I would be very hesitant to support that because that would effectively outlaw certain forms of very valid discussion, right? I don't know. I mean, I don't quite agree that a First Amendment argument technically holds in this case insofar as like the government has the ability to tell school teachers what to teach and to hold them to that. Um, I think the details of this really matter strongly, um, and there are forms of this that I would not be comfortable with. The form of this that I'm most comfortable with is the form that basically says that states will pick up the authority to enforce the protections found in the Civil Rights Act, given that there are what would be obviously, and I think pretty universally recognized as civil rights violations occurring under the guise of critical race theory in schools that the federal government civil rights apparatus has made clear it will not enforce. So to the degree that these laws state explicitly that they will not allow certain forms of critique to be presented to students, uh, I'm less comfortable with that. To the degree that they read as the Idaho uh, legislation does, which is the form found in I think most of them, uh, that students shall not be told that individuals are inherently superior, inferior, that argues directly against projecting Uh, collectivized guilt or any form of essentialism that I'm very comfortable with prohibiting. So we need to take a break. We are here with Max Eden and Marcus Johnson, and we're talking about government banning critical race theory from schools. Stick with us. This is the debate brought to you by Newsweek. Welcome back to the debate brought to you by Newsweek. Our guests today are Max Eden and Marcus Johnson, and we're debating banning critical race theory from schools. Max, I have another question for you, which is that, you know, I've been told for the last six months by Fox News that cancel culture is terrible, cancel culture is on the rise, Um, you know, that the way to, to have your way in the public discourse is not to ban things, is not to deplatform people, but to hash it out on the merits Why isn't this cancel culture? Yeah, so as you very astutely brought up in in your last question, Batia, there is a form of this that can be construed to be that way, right? A form that prohibits uh, in an overly broad way certain forms of information or argument from being presented to students. I'm sympathetic that can go too far. Um, I don't think, however, it's, it's appropriate to look at this and see what we're seeing with cancel culture. I look at it and I see... Uh, an effort to enforce the protections of the Civil Rights Act, right? One distinction that can be drawn between kind of cancel culture and the broader culture and the classroom is that there is a, there's a teacher who is an authority figure who is telling information to students that they very frequently think of as being true. 
Uh, and so there's a little bit of a higher threshold there in general to figure out what are these teachers actually telling the students. And if we found out that a teacher was telling students uh, as a matter of fact that all black students are ignorant and therefore in my pedagogical practice I decenter, disrupt and dismantle blackness in the classroom, they're not free to do that. That's a bigoted, horrible thing. Our laws already say that that is unacceptable. And I don't think anybody would argue that it is proper for a teacher who has authority over students to say that. What's happening under the guise of CRT in schools is, is that, but with adjectives and epithets replaced. You will see in magazines like Education Week, teachers saying that all white students are inherently oppressors, and therefore they will dis decenter, disrupt, and dismantle whiteness in their practice. Uh, and when it comes to that species of what I think should be recognizable as racism, the government absolutely does have a role in prohibiting authority figures from telling students things like that. So, Marcus, I want you to reply to that, but I want to up the ante a little bit. How would you know when critical race theory had gone too far? Right. So what for you is the the line at which you would say, OK, this has gone from simply pointing out the ways in which the past continues to impact the present and gets to a version of cancel culture that perhaps Max defined earlier, which is that the whole system is rigged, that race is the defining feature and that we should be separating kids into groups based on their race or even further. What for you is the dividing line between an appropriate focus on critical race theory or use of critical race theory, let's say, and an inappropriate one? Yeah, well, I, I would say that it should stick to the framework of, of teaching kids that this is a lens, this is a way to understand the world. I think maybe you can go too far when you say, okay, well, if you're giving kids different grades based on their race, if you are explicitly giving them different discipline um, based on their race. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, this is something that we already see. I mean, we see that, um, you know, black kids, um, other non-white kids get higher rates of, of being disciplined um, in school. Uh, we see uh, black kids get different kinds of grades, um, even if they put in the same kind of work uh, as, as other kids. So we see these kind of discriminatory things um, already. And, you know, it's kind of going in the reverse of the way that I think that a lot of the opponents of critical race theory um, say. So I, I think that I would say it would go too far if we're explicitly saying, OK, well, these kids are white, so we're going to give them all C's or D's or F's. Um, but if critical race theory is sticking to explaining um, current economic, political, social disparities and explaining um, past U.S. institutions and how they created some of these present disparities, I, I think that's what it should be doing. And I think that for the most part, um, that's what it does. I think that we hear a lot about the um, you know, cases that are kind of outliers um, and cases where things kind of go wrong. But I don't think that's the norm. I, I think that normally when critical race theory is applied in, in public schools, in universities, in colleges, it is teaching people about a framework for how to view the world that is different than the, the mainstream framework that has been taught uh, for generations. Marcus, I, I, I question for you. So I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a student of American history, and I look back and I see just amazing, legendary Americans. It's kind of like a, it's a fairly uninterrupted strand of thought, honestly. From as far back as Frederick Douglass, really before Frederick Douglass, honestly, but so let's call it starting with Frederick Douglass, all the way up through Martin Luther King Jr. And the the strand of thought was that America obviously has fallen short of its promises. You know, the notion of the Declaration of Independence as a promissory note to be repaid for future generations. 
But we should continually strive towards achieving that more perfect union. The way to do so is to strive towards true justice and equality under the law, where no one is given any special privileges, no one is discriminated against, and so forth. Um, and you know, and I look at kind of the rhetoric of uh, the anti-racism movement today, kind of encapsulated, I think, by the quote from Ibram X. Kendi that Max said earlier in the podcast. And it, you know, it seems to me that under by definition of what anti-racism um, espouses. People like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. would be racist. They were certainly not anti-racist. So I, I wonder here, um, what has changed to make kind of the the great strides of uh, incredible transformative leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. so clearly insufficient? Uh, what in the current moment demands such a radical course correction and change of how we approach this? Oh, well, you know, I look, I look at things a little bit differently. I mean, I, I think I look at Frederick Douglass um, Martin Luther King and other older civil rights leaders as kind of, um, you know, like a historical tree as, you know, you start at the base and then, you know, leaders come up over time and they change and adapt based to the current uh, situations and current events that are happening around them. So I think that Martin Luther King would look at the current Black Lives Matter movement or the 1619 Project and say, those are outgrowths of the things that, that I wanted to do. So I, I don't necessarily, I can, I can see that framework. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I, I think that every every civil rights leader, um, whether it's people that are currently marching um, against police brutality or Martin Luther King, um, going back to Frederick, Frederick Douglass, are responding to the events that are happening in their current time and the pressures and, and circumstances they have to deal with themselves. So I don't necessarily think that they would be opponents of um, cancel culture or opponents of, uh, you know, the Democratic Party or liberalization. Um, you see John Lewis, who was very um, close to Martin Luther King, and he was very much in the, you know, further liberalization. Um, I, I think he would be a supporter, um, if he was still alive today, of, um, of critical race theory and teaching kids the, this framework and this lens. So I, I don't necessarily agree, but I, I see your point. Now, Max, I want to give you a chance to, to respond to that directly if you have any thoughts on you know, how the legacy of King uh, interplays with the, you know, the current rhetoric of Kennedy and folks like that. But I do want to ask you kind of a, 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 a question to follow that up with as well. Um, and you, you've touched on this a little bit already, and Badia has kind of asked you a little bit about this. But, you know, a lot of our, our, our friends on, on the right uh, get squeamish about state power really as kind of a matter of first principles. Um, so I, I'm kind of just wondering after you kind of respond to what Marcus said, whether, you know, if you can kind of make that pitch directly to some, some more kind of libertarian leaning folks who would just get totally squeamish about, you know, government getting in the business of uh, mandating education just prohibits something as a matter of first principle. Yeah. Um, so. You know, I, to respond to, to Marcus's point first, um, I, I rather strongly disagree with it. And I believe that like the kind of central critical race theorists would explicitly disagree with it. In a, a book titled Critical Race Theory and Introduction, uh, critical race theory is defined as, quote, unlike traditional civil rights discourse in that it questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism and neutral principles of constitutional law. So when you go back and you read everything that Martin Luther King wrote, he wrote squarely from within this tradition. And he wrote with the claim that he was going to be fulfilling this tradition. Um, everything that he wrote dated back to the founders, to Aquinas, uh, to, you know, kind of the Western canons classics of political thought that key critical theorists explicitly identify their project as in opposition to. So I think I have a, a very strong difference of opinion with Marcus vis-a-vis -vis that. And to your question, 
Josh, I think that there, there, there's a twofold answer, right? I mean, one is that uh, the other side will, and the other side will regardless. Uh, we have already kind of seeing that they're using levers of the state and grant programs, uh, frequently the apparatus of the Office of Civil Rights to enforce particular ideas and practices and policies on schools. So one way is, you know, you can say, I don't think we should do this slippery slope argument. I've never found that very compelling because the other side frequently does. Uh, but the other thing is that if, if we already are prohibiting a lot, <laughs> the state already is saying you may not make certain forms of argument. You may not send certain messages to students. Uh, the thing that I try to keep on going back into my writing is if you just take what is being kind of said to students, said in teachers' magazines, and you replace white with black, I don't think anybody would disagree. Even some of the most, all but the most squeamish extremist libertarians would, would disagree uh, that schools should not be allowed to racially denigrate students. Uh, it's just a matter of expanding that and extending that to fit uh, our, our current circumstances. So, uh, Marcus, I, I, I kind of want to pick up actually exactly where Max left off there, um, because, you know, this is something that I think uh, uh, a lot of people hear what Max said, and they're very sympathetic to it, I think. They hear, you know, if we just kind of switch the races that are being discussed here, like uh, people's ears would perk up and say that, like, uh, you know, intrinsically, that's a profound injustice. But, you know, to get back to the Kendi quote that we've mentioned like five times already in this podcast about the solution to past discrimination, I, 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 I guess, do you think that, or you know, like let's start with you personally. I don't, I don't want you to speak for all of CRT. Like, do you personally do you think uh, in taking the crux of that Kendi quote that president that the benefits, the cost benefit analysis, the justice, whatever um, of present discrimination does depend on who against whom it is discriminating? Well, the way I look at it is I look at outcomes. Right, like we say now that everyone is equal under the law, but we look at the outcomes and. If you look at Black Family Network, according to Pew Research, um, has eight thousand to maybe fourteen thousand dollars, depending on the year in the past decade, of of, of a net worth um, compared to white families who have one hundred forty to one hundred seventy thousand. So you're talking about you know five percent of of the same economic power. Um, you look at health disparities. Um, white people live longer than black people. Um, you look at uh, crime, um, or not crime, but criminal um, disparities in sentencing. Um, black people have gone to prison for longer sentences <clears throat> for the same crime um, as, as white people. Um, you look at other disparities. So there's still not equality under the law, even if um, legally that's what's being stated. Um, there's still major, major disparities. And I think that critical race theory is saying, how can we account for these disparities despite legally things being equal? And they're saying, okay, well, since things are legally um, equal, we have to look at other ways um, to explain these disparities and potentially other ways to rectify these disparities. I don't think it's about discriminating against whites and saying we're going to take whites out of political power, we're going to take whites out of economic power. It is about saying how can we find ways to change this system to make it more like the egalitarian um, ideals that the United States uh, was founded upon um, and that the founders espoused. So I, I think that critical race theory is about saying there is, is a disconnect between the actual outcomes that we see and the rhetoric that we want to uphold from the founders uh, about 
all men being equal, about a system where everyone can fight to achieve their dreams. Um, right now, that's just not the, the case. Um, if you're living in a black community, for the most part, um, as a political scientist would say, a comparative political scientist, this is a ranked system where if you are black, if you're Hispanic, you're probably going to be poor. I mean, not much you can do to change that. Um, and that's what people want to change when they're saying, you know, we believe in critical race theory. We want to use critical race theory, not as just a lens, but also as you know, a way to change the system to, to make it so that people can actually strive to achieve their goals and to get where they want to go if they put in the work. And I think that's what America is supposed to be. And that's not currently what America is. Yeah. So, Max, just to throw it back to you, I'm sure you have something you want to say about that. But to just um, really to concretize the question, the way I would phrase it is how could a race neutral policy fix a problem that was created by racism or by race. And, you know, you said before, if we swapped out, you know, black for white in the way that children are being talked to, I think that, you know, problematizing whiteness is I'm against it. But at the same time, to act like it with our history, like those are equal propositions, I think is a little bit facetious. Right. Um, So why don't you take that up? Yeah, I mean, I think partly the question could be thrown back and you can ask, well, how could a intentionally racially discriminatory policy be intended be like fix it either? Right. Oh, I love uh, that. Huh. And I think it's it's very important to take a to take a concrete and case by case look at what is actually happening under the guise of critical race theory and to evaluate uh, the relative merits of it. So I'll, I'll take one quick detour as an example of something because I've studied it a lot in other contexts. Uh, there's an argument that's frequently made, and Mr. Johnson made it kind of implicitly in his uh, in his remarks earlier, that the disciplinary disparities are a product of institutional racism of some sort, right? And so we saw this push to lower suspensions, lower expulsions, to this new thing called restorative justice uh, on the grounds that these disparities were prima facie evidence that equality under the law wasn't really equality, right? Well, there are other ways to explain it. The simplest, one of the simplest ways is that students who come from single parent households are twice as likely to misbehave in school. And single parent household rates are not equal across all races and ethnic groups. So that could be one big part of it. And if you have a policy shift that's intended to fix this gap, right, uh, but actually has negative outcomes, is particularly for African-American students, uh, as in my research work I've shown that it has, then you have to be willing to look at results and what's actually happening under these policies and not take the diagnosis of there being a problem as the proof that you have an answer to that problem. Because quite frequently, the policy con- the policy details that are being advanced under this will, my fear is, actually have a disparate and disproportionate harm on African-American students in particular and Hispanic students in particular. And I fear that while we talk about this being a a lens, right, we can actually massively distort our vision and we can miss the results because we become so convinced in the righteousness of our cause that we will make things worse by trying to make things better. Why don't you just go around the horn and offer some kind of final thoughts here. Let's get it back to the actual crux of the question because we've had a lot of really nice kind of academic exchange about what is critical race theory. Let's define the terms here. Um, you know, is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? We're talking here um, in, you know, Idaho, Idaho kind of really out of the gate here, obviously, and a lot of people um, on, on the right are really excited about that and they want to see more. So the kind of a more direct political policy question is, 
should government be involved? And we're really talking here at the state level. Should state governments actually ban this? And, you know, obviously we've kind of, you know, we discussed this all throughout the, the episode, but let's give each of you just a chance to kind of make just a final argument uh, for and against that. So we'll start on the um, on the affirmative, I guess, pro-banning side. So that would be you, Max. Yeah, I mean, in 1964, we recognized that many state governments were not going to enforce equal protection under the 14th Amendment. And so the federal government stepped forward and asserted its power to protect all uh, in, all individuals equally, regardless of their race. And what we are seeing right now at the state level is a movement that is that is starting to hold sway, as you mentioned, a lot of Republicans getting excited about because of this conviction that at the federal level, we are at best no longer seeing a commitment to that. And at worst, seeing a novel form of institutionalized and state sanctioned racism. And so it is absolutely in the proper purview of state governments, which are constantly charged with the education of children in the first place, to ensure that educational environments are free from racial discrimination, directly treating different people differently based on their race, telling them that certain races are inherently good, inherently bad, or certain individuals are inherently guilty or inherently innocent based on the color of their skin. Yeah, so debate about critical race theory is really more than just a debate about critical race theory. It's really a debate about power. It's a debate about which perspectives are allowed to be heard in America, which voices are considered mainstream, which voices are considered fringe. Um, Historically, white men have written history. They've decided which perspectives matter, which perspectives are mainstream. So the country is is now becoming more diverse, and there's a rising multicultural class, and they're deciding they want a bigger voice. They want to redefine what it means to be American. Um, And there are opponents of that who who want to um, shut some of those voices out um, because it threatens, um, you know, their or they perceive it to threaten their power or their hold on power. And that's what the critical race theory debate is really about. It's about the power to set the narrative. Um, and, and if you look back at MLK, and, and we've talked a, a fair bit about Martin Luther King, if you look at the contemporary debate about him, it was the same way. There were a lot of people who said Martin Luther King is a rabble rouser, he's a communist, he, he, he's anti-American, and it was the same thing. It's the power to set the debate. It's, it's about who matters, which voices can, can are American, which voices um, should have political power. And it's the same thing if you go back further to, to integration, segregation, the debate about that. If you go back to abolition, um, abolitionists were canceled in, in, in their day. Um, so I, I think this is really a longstanding debate about power. It's a longstanding debate about um, which voices have, um, you know, political, economic, cultural, social rights. And um, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, critical race theory, it, it might be banned in some states, but I think that in the, in the long run, um, it's going to win out. And I think it's going to be a lens and a framework that people use to understand the world and the United States. All right. Well, we probably have to end it there. But thank you both so much. I thought this was incredibly lively and engaging and informative on both sides. So we at News, we just really want to thank you both for joining us. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you both so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. Welcome back to The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. So, Badia, that was just a very entertaining, lively, and I thought a well-informed exchange by two people who come to this from extremely different perspectives, but certainly know what they're talking about. So, initial thoughts, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that? What do you think? All right. So, my initial thought is this. So, the words critical race theory are actually trending on Twitter today. 
And they're trending because people are not having conversations like this. They are not sitting down in the same room or on the same podcast with people they disagree with and just genuinely listening to what the other side has to say. They're speaking past each other. People are defining it at cross purposes. So first of all, I'm so incredibly grateful to our guests and I'm so incredibly grateful to our listeners for joining us on this journey of actually hearing what the people on the other side of this extremely important and contentious debate think. So from that point of view, I think it was a huge success and it was just such a pleasure to hear them actually engaging with each other's actual arguments as opposed to what we're seeing on Twitter where people are just screaming at each other. So that was sort of my initial point was just like, what a pleasure. What about you? Look, I, I, a lot of this, and we kind of tease this in the intro, a lot of this has to do with how we're defining our terms here, right? I mean, I, it obviously depends how you define critical race theory in the first place. That's kind of part one of this debate. The second part of the debate is whether, um, you know, if it if it is indeed so offensive, um, as many of us believe it is, whether you actually uh, ought to use the power, you know, the power of the state, the levers of the state to actually ban this from public school K through, K through 12 education. Um Look, I, I personally, I don't think this is much of a surprise for anyone who follows me. I, I personally strongly sympathize with Max's arguments on this. I do think critical race theory is as bad as its critics say it is. Um, it is uh, barely veiled racism. Um, I, I, I think uh, you know it, it is incredibly ironic that what we refer to as kind of the anti-racist ideology um, itself, to go back to the Kendi quote that we've quoted so many times, is literally affirmatively advising discrimination. Um, and, you know, I, I really appreciate uh, Marcus's perspective, clearly a very smart guy, but I, I thought he had to kind of maneuver and dodge sometimes when we were talking about, uh, you know, directly answering the question as to what would happen, for example, if you just switch black people and white people. Uh, I mean, it just seems to me so obvious if you take the context of the Kendi quote and we're talking about, you know, a, a say that there's like a hypothetical black majority state and we're talking about using the powers of the state to overtly discriminate against white people. Um, you know, I'm not sure that that the proponents for CRT have a compelling response to that. It's very interesting. Um, I am, if anybody who follows me knows, I'm also not a fan of Kendi's work. Uh, I find it very dangerous, like you. But I can't say I find it as dangerous as the idea of the government intervening and doing what seems to me like um, potentially threatening the First Amendment rights, uh, even in the context of a school. Uh, I have to say, I, I give our kids a little bit more credit. I think that students don't take their teachers' words as, you know, uh, manna from heaven or as the word of God, and and do actually employ some level of critical thinking. Um, and and I have to say that to me, the biggest threat that the sort of critical race theory wokeness point of view poses is that it hides from view by obsessing over race, it hides from view the deep class inequities in America. And I think that in a way, this conversation is doing that as well. So to act like the biggest problem in our schools is that the kids might encounter the 1619 Project hides from view, from my point of view, the biggest threat, which is that they won't learn how to do math or the big racial gaps in achievement that are due to poverty, from my point of view, and that we really should be addressing. So in a way, I feel that... Um, this is a little bit of a sort of let them eat culture wars uh, uh, debate, but one that I'm totally thrilled that we had. And I agree with you is incredibly important for people to discuss and to feel that they can discuss, you know, going back to the to the cancel culture question. Yeah, I guess as someone who comes from a line of teachers, my mom's a third grade teacher, my grandmother, 
uh, used to be a special ed elementary school teacher. My great-grandmother, who passed away before I was born, was also a teacher. Um, I, I do believe powerfully and profoundly in the, in the ability, the formative uh, ability of teachers to kind of shape their students and by extension the kind of the next generation of, of, of Americans. And you, you, you can go back to the founders. They wrote all the time. Um, you know, the most, one of the most famous examples of this quote, obviously, is the famous John Adams line about how the Constitution was only intended for a religious and moral people. It was wholly inadequate to any other religion, not so much directly relevant, but the broader point stands that I think th- th- there was a kind of uninterrupted stream of thought that really only stopped maybe kind of around the time of like the mid 20th century or so that it is a quintessential formative role for our schools to inculcate virtue and sound Republican, low, that's sorry, lowercase r Republican habits of mind in the next generation so we can actually shape and sculpt the next generation of citizens who are capable of um, having some sort of civic pride in their country, striving towards a more, more perfect union. Anyway, all that's to say that I think that using schools to kind of uh, instill kind of racial divisiveness um, and, and, and really at its core to kind of preach discriminatory, uh, overtly discriminatory um, rhetoric and, and tactics um, is really kind of antithetical to all that we stand for. But couldn't agree with you more. Really happy we aired this out. Um, I thought it was a really great dialogue, and I, I sincerely hope the listeners will will agree with us. Yeah, let us know what you think, guys. Write to us at thedebate at newsweek.com. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you thought about the debate, who won. We want to hear what you're debating in your own homes. Uh, be in touch, and we will see you next time. This was The Debate at Newsweek. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.